The Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm super delighted to welcome uh, Brad Feld to uh, today's show. Brad's been an early stage uh, investor and entrepreneur for around 30 years now. He co-founded Foundry Group, Mobius Venture Capital, Intensity Ventures, and Techstars. And Brad's also a published author and a long-distance runner who's completed dozens of marathons. So, uh, Brad, it's great to have such a multi-talented entrepreneur, author, and athlete join me on today's show. Gary, I'm delighted to be here with you. So I'm, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about your new book, The Startup Community Way, and in particular, the theory of complex systems. So why is complex systems theory relevant to startups and scale-ups? I wrote The Startup Community Way, which just came out as a sequel to a book I wrote in 2012 called Startup Communities. And I wrote that book before the phrase startup communities existed. So I had a premise that you could build a startup community in any city in the world. And I live in Boulder, Colorado, which is about 100,000 people. So my view was that any city with at least 100,000 people should be able to support a startup community. And in fact, really needed a startup community as part of the innovation component of the city and sort of the health and rejuvenation of it. In 2017 or so, I was starting to get the question from people, okay, we've been at the startup community thing for a couple of years, what now? And one of the tenets of my, what I call the Boulder thesis around startup communities is that you have to have a very long-term view, at least 20 years. And I've evolved that to be now at least 20 years from today. So you always have to have this 20 year into the future frame of reference around what you're doing. So I set out to write sequel with co-author, a guy named Ian Hathaway, who's become a very, very close friend. And it took us about a year to get to a place where we understood what we wanted to write about. We actually threw away the first draft of about 40,000 words that we just thought was junk and not very good, which was you know hard to do, but you sort of have to say, all right, well, we've written a bunch of stuff, but it's, it's not really additive. And uh, one day we landed and really Ian, Ian prompted the idea that startup communities were complex adaptive systems. And as a result, we shortened it to complex systems to make it easier to process. We ended up building the book entirely around the theory of complex systems. Many people, the notion of complexity theory may be a little abstract or intellectual, but it's very powerful, especially in the world of business, because most companies or all companies are complex systems. The dynamics that we're dealing with in the COVID crisis, not just the health crisis, which is linked to the disease, but the economic crisis generated by the health crisis and the ensuing mental health crisis, I think that many people are struggling with and starting to acknowledge globally. And of course, in the US, the resurgence and amplification of a racial crisis that we've been having forever. All of these crises are complex systems and they behave in very different ways than the two other types of systems, which most people try to organize things around, especially large institutions, governments, university, politicians, large businesses, which are either simple systems that have a very well-defined playbook, recipe, and a deterministic outcome. Making a cup of coffee would be a simple system, right? You put beans in with water, 
they go through a machine, coffee comes out. The coffee might not be very good, but it's a very deterministic process with an outcome. A complicated system would be doing your monthly financial statements. Lots more steps. They can go in different orders. Lots of you know, variability in terms of how the process works, but still a process. And at the end, you have a balance sheet, income statement, and cash flow. Raising a child is a complex system. If on the beginning of, you know, when the child is born, if you map out the playbook for that child for their life, at the minimum, you guarantee, you'll guarantee if you try to enforce that playbook that that child's going to need a lot of therapy when they get older. And most likely, you know, the child, the child will be nothing like whatever you think that playbook is. So companies, startups are complex systems, scale-ups are complex systems, startup communities are complex systems. And we use that framing to help understand how things develop, evolve, grow, and what you should put your attention against if you want to essentially evolve and, and develop your startup community. So how can a, a leader or an entrepreneur use the ideas of complex systems to help them grow, scale their business? A simple example is just to bring it more to light. Many leaders of companies create a plan. And you create a plan and that plan, you know, whether it's a one-year plan or a three-year plan or a five-year plan, anybody who's been running a business, an entrepreneurial business or scaled up an entrepreneurial business knows that the one thing they can guarantee about their plan is that it's wrong. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, anybody who plays the, you know, winds the clock back to uh, January 2020, right? January 2020, probably most scale-ups that are listening to this uh, had finished their 2020 plan. Right, maybe they finished it in December, but they probably finished it in, in January and they'd given it to their board and sort of gotten blessing on the 2020 plan. And this is what we're going to do, and this is what we're going to hire, and this is what our growth curve is going to be, and these are where our new investments are going to be, and you know, all that stuff. We have a lot of companies like that in our portfolio at Foundry Group. And at the end of March, after the pandemic was now in full bloom, we told all of our portfolio companies to tear up their 2020 plan, just throw it away. Whatever the 2020 plan is, forget about it. And what you need to do right now is have situational awareness about what's unfolding day by day, week by week. You have to have some hypotheses about how it's going to impact your business. But those are hypotheses because you have absolutely no idea what's happening right now. How do they respond, by the way, to that uh, rip up the plan? I think most of them responded extremely well. There was massive, massive, massive uncertainty at the end of March. If you remember, the end of March was when the public markets were collapsing. You know, the pandemic was really accelerating. Lockdowns had started all around the world and were accelerating. You know, the, in, in the U.S., states were starting to lock down. There was a lot of resistance to it, but people were dealing with reality. And I think companies all of a sudden, many entrepreneurial and tech companies, anybody who had an office and could, you know, work from an office had already shifted to work from home. And so you had this phenomenon where people knew that whatever they were trying to do, there was no way it was going to work the way they thought it was going to work. So the shift from, I have a plan, I'm executing a plan to, there is no plan, I need to deal with current reality, and I need to deal with current reality that is changing daily, and I need to make decisions based on hypotheses. So I need to run a bunch of experiments. You know, if you're three people, that's easy. If you're a thousand people, that's really hard. If you're a thousand people distributed in multiple locations who are all now trying very rapidly to figure out how to all work from home because you're an organization, maybe you have a couple of offices, but you have a work from office culture. 
And even though people travel around and that sort of thing, like, like everything's different. And then suddenly school shuts down. And so the families that are, you know, two parents, both working full time now with three kids in their house, and they're trying to figure out homeschool, like just a level of pressure on leaders, not just in their own lives, but against the context of what's happening with their, you know, their employees and their organization. That's, I mean, I'm just describing the essence of a complex system. And one of the things that's so powerful, and you ask the question, how do people react? Most venture firms, you know, now with the benefit of another couple, three, four, five months, most venture firms went through an exercise with their existing portfolio. We call it red, yellow, green exercise, right? Green was companies that appeared that they would have benefit from this crisis. And examples of those companies that are easy to identify would be, you know, video conferencing companies. Like that's fairly obvious that a video conferencing company is going to benefit. Another example would be a telemedicine company. Like pretty early on, you could say, yeah, this type of a company is going to have, you know, pick your cliche, tailwinds from the COVID crisis. At the other end of the spectrum were red companies, companies that were really, really, really impacted negatively. And we're starting to see the Q2 numbers for, you know, I, I think I, Lyft's numbers were out yesterday, Airbnb, which is now rumored to go public. Their numbers were leaked and they were out yesterday. Uber's numbers were out recently. You know, if a company depended on people traveling or going to the office, at the beginning of April, you could, you could pretty well predict that those companies were pretty screwed in the near term. And, you know, they were going to have to make massive adjustments to their business to emerge and survive. Those were red. And then there were a bunch of companies in our portfolio that were yellow. Just didn't know. You know, you could make arguments and you could hypothesize either direction. And the key for those businesses was prior to the COVID crisis, most of their missions were grow, right? That was what scale-ups were told to do, grow. You know, take the money you have that your investors have given you and figure out how to grow. Some of them were now generating positive cash flow. So grow your top line while growing your cash flow. Many of them were money-losing companies. So grow your top line as fast as you can. That's going to increase your value. In April, rapidly, like overnight, that conversation shifted to make sure you don't die, <laughs> right? Make sure you don't go out of business. So if you're a CEO of a company and you got to make sure you don't die, what's What's the first thing you want to do if you don't know how long a crisis is going to last? Make sure you have enough cash. So do things, you know, understand how much cash you, you have. Do things that can immediately lower your burn rate. If you have debt facilities, draw down your debt. And then, again, focus on situational awareness around the notion of not dying. And by, you know, the end of April into May, certainly in the U.S., there was massive financial stimulus PPP loans, all kinds of stuff. Companies were starting to understand what business was going to look like. And some of those yellow companies became green and some of those yellow companies became red and some of the red companies became yellow. And like, you know, all of a sudden you're dealing with different dynamics that are unfolding. Again, I'm describing how a complex system works versus there's a deterministic outcome. Like we could have said the pandemic's going to be over on June 30th. And so all you need to do are the following steps to get to June 30th. And on July 1st, everything will be back to the way it was on February 20th. And you'll just, you know, da 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 So end with, like, there's so many uh, next level down things that we talk about in the startup community way that apply to this kind of a phenomena, both in terms of specific tactics, but also ways to think conceptually about what's unfolding in these complex systems that then cause your behavior to be bottom-up behavior versus top-down behavior, right? Instead of trying to control things, allow things to be 
generative, understand how things emerge, understand how to run hypotheses, test them, iterate very rapidly and learn from that, and recognize things like positive and negative feedback loops or positive and negative contagion, which not surprisingly has similar uh, biological constructs to what we're dealing with, with with the COVID and the health crisis that we're dealing with today. You've referred a couple of times to mental health challenges as well. And clearly this period has been, continues to be quite challenging for many of us involved in, in scaling businesses. You've written extensively about the way you've overcome certain mental health challenges. And you're a big proponent of going completely off grid, which is something that I rarely manage to do. Even the sailing boats that I love to charter, well, they always have Wi-Fi. <laughs> so I'd love to hear more about truly going off grid. How do you do it? How often? And how long for? Uh, so I'm doing it next week. Amy, my wife, and I generally do it once a quarter for a week. You know, I'm fortunate that I have a work configuration where I can do it once a quarter for a week. I would say that the length of time and the number of times is less important than the activity itself, which is a full, complete disconnect. Whether you do it for a three-day weekend a couple times a year or you do it four, four times a year for a week doesn't, like, it, it's, 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 there's not a, a specific amount you need to do. What I generally do is I turn everything off, all phone, email. I put an email responder up. Usually I put an email responder up that says, I'm not going to see this email. I'm, I'm off the grid for a week. I'm not going to see this email. When I get back, I'm going to delete all my emails. Uh, so if you want me to see this email, send it to me again and send it to me again on this day. And what that does is it allows me to be liberated from having to show back up a week later and have 2,500 emails that I then have to go relive the last week, much of which doesn't matter. A few things will, but much won't. And interestingly, the important things will surface back up. And, you know, the first three or four years I did that, it was excruciating because I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to miss something critical. And I've been doing this now for about 20, 20 years since 2000. And, you know, I can't think of a single critical thing that was missed by going off the grid for a week. So no phone, no email. Sometimes Amy and I travel in the time of COVID. We just stay home. Even when we travel and go somewhere, generally we do the same thing we do at home, which is I sleep late, so I rest. I read a lot. I love to read. I read about 100 books a year, so I read, you know, kind of multiple hours a day. I exercise, I run, swim, I hang out with Amy. We have three meals a day together and we spend a lot of time just being together. I take a nap every afternoon. I mean, it's really an emotional and physical and intellectual reset. And I, I treat it very differently than a vacation where, you know, you're on a vacation and you're visiting people or you're going to see a place or something like that. And instead, I view it very much as, all right, my life's intense. I work really hard. My brain's always on. And here's my reset. The other thing that I've I added into that in 2013, sort of in the midst of a six-month depressive episode was something I refer to as digital Sabbath, which is I'm Jewish, but not religious. And I've always liked the idea of the Sabbath. And so for Friday night through Sunday morning, I do the same thing as a week off the grid, a total disconnect, no phone, no email. I probably 
successfully do that three out of four weeks, maybe 75 to 80% of the time. So it's not one where, you know, if I have a bunch of stuff that spills over or for example, this weekend, there's no way I'm going to finish everything I need to get done before I take a week off by Friday night. So I'm going to work on Saturday and I'll start my, my week off the grid Sunday. So, you know, again, it's instead of being rigid about these things, like allowing them to be integrated into the normal flow of life. But, you know, uh, when Friday comes, my world kind of knows, like I'll pop back up Sunday morning and I'll respond to the emails. And even just having that stretch of time, right, two, two evenings and a full day without getting messages on your phone and feeling compelled to check and respond to email. And, you know, I just got to get this one more thing done. And then those things allow one special bonus part of this, which is in addition to having a reset for me, I get to spend really focused time with the person that I was put on this planet to spend time with, which is my wife, Amy. And we really use it as intentional time together. Doesn't mean we have to spend all the time doing stuff together, but physically being in the same space, physically engaging with each other for a 24-hour period once a week. It's awesome. That's uh, a really lovely story. I'm also intrigued about the portfolio. So these have been challenging times. Well, pretty much everyone. Presumably, there are people, leaders in your portfolio who've had not just business struggles over the last couple of quarters, but also some degree of mental health issues, challenges. So to what extent have you helped individuals within the portfolio to deal with some of the mental health challenges they faced? It's a very valid assertion. I think almost all of the CEOs and leaders that I know are struggling, even if their businesses are doing well, are struggling with some element of this crisis at a, an emotional level. And, you know, if somebody is listening to this and say, I'm not, uh, uh, okay, great. But, you know, if you, if you relate to that statement, you know, whether it's you have a family member, an older family member who is sick or has died, or is somebody you're worried about, you can't spend time with them, whether you've got kids that are, you know, missing the physical interaction with other kids, whether you're missing physical interaction with other humans, whether you have conflict in your household, whether your business is under distress, like pick the number of things. There are some people that really enjoy, I don't want to say isolation, that's not the right word, but enjoy this kind of a dynamic. I like to work from home. I'm very active online but I burnt out on travel about six or seven years ago. I traveled for 75% of the time for the first 25 years of my professional career. And about six, seven years ago, I'm like, you know what, I'm done. And so much of my work, it, you know, and I, we invest all around the US, I, I have a very, you know, sort of video conferencing remote relationship with many of the CEOs I work with. And I'm very comfortable with that. I go to sleep early. Amy and I are early birds. I don't drink anymore. Right. So like going out and partying and going to events, I've never been to live sports. So in, in a lot of ways, a lot of those things don't, you know, for me, like, okay, good. However, even me who likes being at home is starting to feel after five months restless and constrained. While I'm very comfortable and very fortunate, I can feel that emotional build. And so then I'll shift to a CEO who I talked to yesterday who is travels a couple hundred thousand miles a year. 
uh, because he loves to be out there. We've, they've got a bunch of offices, loves to go be in different offices and be with different teammates and meet with customers and be out there with his team. And he's finding that working at home is excruciating for him. And he's very, you know, very unhappy in the moment, which I find typical of a number. Like that's one example of many. So there's lots of dimensions where it's emotionally hard. Your question was very specific is what am I doing to be helpful to those leaders? And and I'll I'll riff off a few things. One, I'm very open about my own struggles with mental health. You know, you used the word overcome earlier. I haven't overcome my struggles with mental health. It's a continual struggle for the rest of my life. I mean, I, I have an anxiety disorder. It triggers depression. I have had multiple extended depressive episodes. I have learned how to manage my life and manage my environment and manage myself to minimize or to lessen the impact of that stuff, that stuff being the anxiety disorder and the depressive episode. But it still emerges, and I still have to do work at it. By being open about it, one of my goals is to eliminate the stigma associated with mental health particularly in the domain that I'm in, which is entrepreneurship, because I think that mental health and addressing whatever language you want to use, mental health or mental wellness or mental fitness, you want to turn it into positive. I think that's an important characteristic for leaders to address and address directly with themselves and with their teams, recognizing that as humans, we're big bags of chemicals and there's a lot of complex things that happen and lots of good and lots of bad. We are complex systems. We are complex systems. And so you know, having a stigma associated with mental health, especially amongst leaders, just creates a negative feedback loop, again, complex system that makes the, the struggle even harder. So number one is lowering the stigma, which make or eliminating the stigma, which makes it accessible to talk about. And my own experience is like even being able to talk about it uh, in a lot of cases makes it less heavy. Next, we are very, very strong supporters of coaches and coaching with leaders. One of my, my favorite, and I think he's the best CEO coach in the world, a guy named Jerry Colonna, one of my closest friends, runs a company called Reboot. And Jerry talks about the combination of practical skills development, right? So think about a, a leader, CEO, practical skills development, getting better at what you do through learning. At the same time, this notion of radical self-inquiry and the importance of the linkage of those, right? Practical skills development, you can do online courses, radical self-inquiry, you can do therapy, But the linkage between those two is coaching. And a really great coach in the context of a CEO can be immensely helpful in these moments. Next, we provided, uh, we invested in a company called Meru Health, M-E-R-U-Health.com, which provides online mental health services, both therapy and then sort of an engaged 12-week program that is underwritten in a way in the U.S., our healthcare system is very, very messed up with regard to many things, but especially around mental health for employers and employees. And so they're approaching that completely differently. And at Foundry Group, we underwrote the Merrill Health Service for all all of our CEOs for the program, for anybody that wanted it. We didn't insist they take it. We just said, it's available. We're paying for it. So if you're in this moment feeling distress and you want to try this, this is another tool for you to try. And then I'd say the last is we are big believers in what we call a mesh network. We're not the center of the network of the CEOs and entrepreneurs. We're just connectors to them and we want them to be connected to each other. So the network of CEOs that we have 
those CEOs really have many, many peer relationships with other CEOs in our portfolio. And we facilitated a number of things around mental health, not just for them, but for their employees, along with a number of other things in this moment, right? Obviously, or not obviously, but specifically in the US, right? Racial equity has been a major issue and has come to the forefront again. You know, DEI and B, which is the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging training is something that's existed and some companies do it, but we've tried to facilitate in this moment, not just training, but a better understanding of the dynamics around that and how that intersects with all the other things that their employee base are going through. All of those sorts of things as a firm, not saying to our companies that we're investors in, do this, do that. But again, bottom up, providing resources for those leaders where when those leaders want to engage with those resources, it's very easy and accessible for them and trying to bring to them resources that we think are going to be powerful. Now, on the diversity and inclusion front, so I've been promoting the need for more diversity in tech for a while. I I ran a very interesting poll on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago about DNI tools and techniques and approaches that people would recommend. I noticed that you've recently made a personal commitment to getting at least one non-white board member and preferably at least one female and one non-white board member on every single board that you serve on. Even if that means giving up your own board seat, and that fascinated me, what prompted you to make this commitment and why now? Well, a couple of reasons. Uh, why now is a function of my own reflection in the moment, post the murder of George Floyd in the U.S., and recognition that in terms of racial equity, while my wife and I have been supporters through our foundation for many years of issues around social justice, in the world of entrepreneurship and investing, I've been a passive participant in, this, uh, in the dynamics around racial equity, and I wasn't proud of that. I've been a very active participant in gender equity going back to 2005 through a number of organizations and initiatives that I've been involved in. So I I understood how to be what I describe as an advocate or an ally, and now in the language of racial equity, an ally or an accomplice. In gender equity, it's generally called advocate, and that became ally. In racial equity, it's generally ally and now accomplice. And I like like that language a lot. You know, as, as a man, especially as a white man, when I show up in conversations around gender equity, I learned very, very quickly that the thing to do was not say, hi, I'm here to help, or what should I be doing, or I know what the problem is, and it's this. Like that's At best, that activity is neutral, and generally, it's very harmful. And so I learned with my experience, again, how to be an advocate or a male advocate in the context of gender equity. And my view in the context of racial equity is the same thing, to be a white advocate or a white accomplice in the goal to eliminate racism in the U.S. As part of that, it's very clear, the numbers are, are terrifying when you actually stare at them, about the gender or the racial inequity, also gender inequity, in tech and entrepreneurship. And as a middle-aged white guy, I'm clearly part of the problem. And so the way to be part of the solution from my frame of reference is to be a very, very active ally and accomplice One of those things clearly is the dynamics around boards and making sure that boards of directors of private companies, which if you look at 
you know, many, many boards and many of the boards I've historically been on, you know, they're primarily white men. In recent years, there's been some effort, especially in public companies, to have both gender and racial diversity. So there's been a little bit of focus on that. But even in the entrepreneurial universe, it's still very white male centric. My partners and I have been working on that incrementally. And so if you actually look across our portfolio, you will see more women on boards probably in our portfolio, certainly than a couple of years ago in our portfolio, and starting to see people of color on our boards. You know, each of us, I think, are approaching it our own way. But several of of my partners, like me, have made a very concerted commitment to change the board configurations. Interestingly, my view, I think my partner's views, and the general experience that I've had with gender diversity on boards is that when you have a monoculture or a board that's a bunch of white guys, you end up having a company culture, even if it's talking about being a more diverse gender and racial culture, you just literally don't have a perspective on it from the top. In addition, when you think about your business and how your business is evolving from a product and customer perspective, you know, you tend to have a lot of built-in biases, whether they're conscious or unconscious, that play, play a part. And so for me, as a board member, I think I learn a lot more by being part of a board that has more gender and racial diversity. And rather than sort of let that evolve over time or be a passive participant in it, I decided to be an active participant in changing that with regard to the boards that I was involved in. Well, I really believe you're doing the right thing there. And it's proven that there's some kind of um, drip through effect that if you change the leadership teams of these businesses, then the senior executive team will become more diverse and then the middle management team will become more diverse. It has to be top down. You cannot do this bottom up. Something else that's intrigued me about you, how do you manage to find the time? You swim, you run, you write books, you invest, you sit on various boards. How do you squeeze all of that into your daily life? Well, I don't have any kids. (laughs) Okay. Amy and I consciously chose not to have children. We've been together for about 30 years. So, you know, if you don't have kids, that's a big, it's a really significant time commitment for for adults. Second, um, I've always liked to work hard. I've worked hard since I was in high school and probably, you know, as a younger kid, but since I sort of had any cognizance of it, I went to MIT. I learned one of the things that you learn at MIT is how to work and how to get stuff finished, you know, even if it's, a, if it's really hard and even if it's something that you're struggling with. So just how to get it done. And so what I try to do is not have, I I used to, you know, everybody talks about work-life balance and the idea of balance and can you have work-life balance or if you're an entrepreneur, you can't have work-life balance. I hear that, that cliche regularly, which I completely, I just find it so unhelpful. I don't think the word balance is right. So my view is not that the key is balance. My view is that the key is what I call harmony. And so this idea that you have work-life harmony kind of like improv jazz, you know, things are sort of always out of balance, always sort of moving in different directions. But if it's in harmony, it's beautiful. And when it's out of harmony or not harmonious, it might not be awful because there's actually some quite interesting music that doesn't have, you know, harmony. You know, I think of John Cage or something like that. But, but, you know, if you're searching for harmony, 
when it becomes non-harmonious or inharmonious, I'm not sure what the right word is actually, when it's not harmonious, uh, you notice. And it sort of pushes you to say, whoa, you know, what do I need to change here? And so for me, it's less about allocating my energy and time to specific things, but allowing sort of the ebb and flow of all this. And it sort of takes us back to the earlier conversation about a week off the grid, a quarter and, and um, a digital Sabbath is for me to stay in harmony, I do need these periods of just reset, even if it's just a day. And fascinating thing happens, by the way, I, I love to take naps. So, you know, every Saturday afternoon, generally I'll take a nap. Only Saturdays, not weekdays. Not weekdays usually because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working. Although, you know, next week I'll take a nap every single day, right? Because I'll be off the grid. Um, I usually take a nap on Saturday and Sunday afternoons. And one of the things that happens, sometimes I don't feel like a nap. I don't, I'm not tired or whatever. And I'll be laying on the couch reading a book and it's three or four o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday. And I feel bored. <laughs> and I relish those moments versus be scared of them. Um, I used to be very scared of them, right? I was bored. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to do something. I got to, you know, what's my next thing? And now when, when I have a wave of that, I usually just close my eyes and think for a moment that I don't have to do anything right now. Having things like that in a busy life, in an intense life, coming back to this notion of harmony, allows that harmony to keep playing. Right. So it's not being afraid of those moments where I'm overwhelmed today. Like it's just, I know I've got a thing till eight o'clock at night. And by the time I get done, my eyes are going to be crossed and I'm not going to be able to make coherent sentences. And when Amy says something to me, it's going to take me a little while to like process what she just said. At one end of the spectrum, I know that at the other end of the spectrum, there's those afternoons, you know, where it's 2 30 and I'm just going to go crawl into bed for 90 minutes and take a nap. And that's part of the harmony that allows the intensity to stay going. Well, lovely. Brad, it's been super having you on this week's show, exploring topics ranging from, well, complex systems to diversity, mental health and harmony. So uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. This was a fun conversation. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. 